I do want to begin at Christmas. Not that this was originally a Christmas message, but as I prayed about it, I figured, well, I'll incorporate a little bit of Christmas into it, though uh, it will get rather challenging as we get into it. We cannot rise above our understanding of God. We can't. I guarantee you the problems we have in our life, the, the problems we have in our life is because there are distortions in our mind about who God is. And until those distortions are dealt with, we are not going to overcome. We're not going to because the very aspects that we have distortions about God, that we don't understand Him, and as a result of not rightly understanding Him, then we don't rightly understand ourselves. Because of that, it is going to affect our lives. I could take you to all kinds of people that I've known because I've been in ministry for over 40 years. All kinds of people. I could take you to people that have been lived defeated lives. And right at the core of that, there is a wrong view of God. Never get victory because they don't want to change their view of God. They are so stuck in something, they are so set in that, that there's no ability to change because they cannot perceive of anything outside of a little box of what they have. And so as a result of their distorted view of God, they got a distorted view of self, they got a distorted view of discipleship, they got a distorted view of the whole thing because it begins with this distorted idea of God. So if we want to overcome, if we want to live a victorious Christian life, we have to begin by our understanding of God. It begins right there. And when we see our life not lining up with what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus, we don't go and blame other people in our life. We don't go and, and make all the excuses. We go right to the foundation of it and say, God, what is wrong with my view of you and my view of how I approach you and my view of how I get victory? Because I guarantee you, I give you an absolute that there has to be no person that is a true follower of Jesus that has to live a defeated life. None. We are defeated because we choose to be defeated, because we choose not to do what we're called to do, because we have a wrong understanding of God, and we're unwilling to let Him revolutionize our understanding of Him. So we get stuck, like Pharisees. Stuck. Same thing, year in and year out. And so I just challenge you, with your own life, look at what's been in your life that you know is wrong. How many years has it been there? How many more years must it be there? Why is it that these same things are the same issues in your life that have been there all this time and never, ever overcoming? Why? Because at the root of it all is an incorrect understanding of God. And until that changes... You are going to stay stuck in the same identical thing, the same vicious cycle, the same criticalness, the same attitudes, the same bitterness, the same struggles, the same lust and pride, all those things. Because at, at the core of this is a wrong view of God, and because you have a wrong view of God, you have a wrong view of self, a wrong view of discipleship, and you then live defeated. doesn't have to be like that. When... God broke into this world. We're told in Hebrews that angels longed to look into those things. We have no way of knowing what God told the angels, how much they knew or understand, understood, but they longed to look into it. And if you think of it like this, that what happened is that that morning where Jesus broke through the womb and came into this world, 
that there was so much joy in heaven that it was overflowing, and they ended up being in earth a little bit. And so, in front of all these shepherds, here's these, these angels that begin to worship and glorify God, and I don't think it was some stoic thing. I don't think it was this dead, dry thing. I think there was just such exuberance and excitement and the, and the joy that was just coming out of these angelic beings rejoicing over what is going on. God has become man. What is He going to do? What does this mean? They didn't know. Luke chapter 2, verses 15 through 18, it says, When the angels had left them, left the shepherds, and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So what did the angels say? Before all the hosts of heaven was there, what did the angels say? That you, a Savior, has been born. He is Christ the Lord. Now, isn't that astounding that He came to these poor shepherds that lived a, a, such a solitary life? Instead of going into the metropolis of Jerusalem and going into the temple or among all the, the priests and showing himself to them and, and making this proclamation there, he goes to shepherds, he goes to people that were the, the poor and, 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 if we might word it like that, the disinherited of society and went to them to bring the proclamation that Messiah has come, that he would be Savior. Now, this is a wonderful revelation, but yet it's only a partial revelation. Because this revelation isn't enough to save an individual. It doesn't give us the information that's needed. It gives us some information. It tells the Savior. But it doesn't even bring out all the aspect of what that saving is or how that saving works. It just brings out the aspect of a Savior's coming, and He's Messiah. And of course, at that time in Israel, they looked at Messiah as being a son of David, which Jesus was. That he had a right to the throne, which Jesus did. But they thought that he would come as a conquering king, like David was, to overcome and defeat all their enemies and, and make Israel the, the praise of the world and Jerusalem the center of worship. And they had no idea, so here they get something. Messiah's come, and all these ideas would have popped into their mind. What is happening? What is going to take place? Freedom from Rome. Herod, the Herod dynasty kicked out because Herod and his family had no right to rule Israel at all. None. That was given to them by Caesar. So then we have the story of the wise men. You know, it's pretty astounding because, you know, here you have God coming to shepherds that were Jewish in faith. How they held to the Jewish faith, we can't say. But they were Jewish in faith, at least at the very basic level. But here he comes the men that were pagans. Gentiles. You understand, right from the beginning is this, this astounding thing that salvation would not just come to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And he brings this revelation to the Gentiles that the Jews did not even have. They didn't even see it. They didn't even understand 
The Jews didn't comprehend this, but yet here's these Gentiles, these wise men, who end up seeing something that Israel could not see. And so they make all that travel, this travel, probably at least three months. Three months travel one way. To see a king. After Jesus was born in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And so they came all that distance. They saw a star, and I believe that star, this is my opinion, I believe that star was an angel. Yeah, I know people have tried to do all kinds of things, astronomy and all this stuff, and you know it takes a greater miracle for some light to come all the way from millions and millions of light years away upon a, uh, upon a, 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 a child. I think that, that takes greater faith to believe that than what it would be for an angel to have been there leading the way to the Magi, to the place where Jesus was. And so they come. Here's the revelation, the King of the Jews. But what did they understand of that? Did they comprehend that He was Savior? So you have knowledge here that is partial. Knowledge that only gives so much information. Tremendous revelation. They knew that Jesus coming into this world had something phenomenal to take place. But yet it was only so much knowledge. It says in the 11th verse of Matthew chapter 2, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped Him. Then they opened their treasures and presented to Him gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. Well, we do not know how many magi there were. Okay, so our little manger scenes, what do they have? Three. Why? Because of three gifts. But we don't know how many there were. No idea. Never told. Okay? And yet here they come and they understand something and I'm not sure what this worship was, because that word worship can also be used in the aspect of reverence. So they came and they bowed before Him at the very least, acknowledging that He was King. If they understood anything more than that, it was revelation that came to them on top of seeing the star. So we don't know to what extent they understood who this Jesus was, but they knew He was a king. So the shepherds saw Him, and they understood He was Savior and Messiah. And these wise men saw Him and understood He was king. But yet still the knowledge was not enough for them to have a relationship with God. It was not enough for them to understand what saving really is and how to be saved. And so what it was is you had this joyous vision, this joyous vision of the angels worshiping. Can you imagine the joy? I can just, I, I, when I think of that, I just think of the, the presence of the Holy Ghost that was there and this joy that was just coming from these angels, you know, just that the shepherds were experiencing and feeling that was there in this astounding experience. They were terrified. They were trembling. And I don't doubt they were filled with joy as they're probably weeping, they probably got this humongous smile on their face. Because how could you, in the presence with such joy, have a frown? Right? Just joy. And then what about with the wise men? Joyful vision. Three months traveling through all this hard, difficult country. All the money that it took for them to get there. You understand? There was great expense to get there. And they look at a little itty-bitty child. 
and the joy of all the travel, the joy of all that they saw. You see, partial knowledge of God can't save us. It can't save us. It can't bring us to the place that God really wants us to be. And even worse is a wrong view of God. Because a wrong view of God is harder to undo than to have less of a view of God. Well, when I was younger, I took three years of guitar lessons. And, you know, a lot of people learn guitar just by picking it up. And when you do that, you end up having a lot of bad habits. A lot of bad habits. So you hold the guitar correctly and all kinds of stuff is wrong. Is If you want to be a classical guitar player, uh, they would throw the majority of guitar players out the window because you are so sloppy, you can't even come close to doing anything like that. You've got to relearn everything. But to relearn everything, that means you have to unlearn all that you've learned that's sloppy and bad, that you might learn what is proper. That's the way it is with God. We get all this stuff in us, and it can get such a root in us, and all these ideas that are wrong and incorrect, and to undo those is tremendous work. Because we've got to be willing to let go of all the baggage that we have made sacred in our minds about how God is and what God does and how the church should function, and not look at the Word of God and really let the Word of God tell us. Because what we do then is we read the Word through these lenses we look at with our distortions. And so wrong views of God produce defeat. It does. It makes us defeated people. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Verses 29 and 30. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Behold, the Lamb of God. The next day refers to the day after the Pharisees had asked John, if he was the promised Messiah. And he said, no. And so John foretold about the coming Messiah. And what he told came from divine revelation. I mean, it's astounding what God revealed to John the Baptist. It's astounding. He didn't get it from some other preacher. He didn't get it from listening to something on the radio. He got it from being with God, sitting at His feet, and God communicating to him these truths about who Messiah would be and what Messiah would do. And so he said in verse 27, He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. John the Baptist had catapulted to popularity. Some theologians say that upwards of a million people had heard John preach. The popularity of the man was tremendous. The religious Jews were terrified of him because of that popularity. What's he doing out in the wilderness? Not even going into urban settings. Out in the wilderness and people coming to him. 
He's not even going out seeking them. They're seeking after Him. One hear the words that He has to say because there was anointing, there was power resting upon Him. And yet He says, One's coming after Me that's greater than I am, and I am not even worthy to untie His sandals, which would be what the lowest of the low servants would do in untying the sandals and washing the feet. He says, I'm not even fit to do that. He understood something about who this Messiah was. And so the knowledge came by divine revelation. And he understood that he was the Lamb of God. And we're going to look at that in just a couple minutes, get a little deeper into that, because it's quite an astounding thought. But that this Messiah had come for a reason to take away the sins of the world. Do you understand what he said there? Of the world, not of Israel alone, but of the world. So in that prophecy was a prophecy about what God would do for the world itself. And if you think of that from a Jewish standpoint, that is like upsetting. Because to the Jews, which was right in the Old Testament, salvation was of the Jews. But God was going to bring it to the Gentiles as well. And so that was something that had to be just, just really disturbing to the scribes and Pharisees. It had to grate against everything that they had. And even the early church had a hard time until Cornelius, the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, they had a hard time of understanding Gentiles coming to salvation because if Gentiles came to salvation, they would have to do it by going through the Mosaic Law. And so John's bringing something out here that's absolutely astounding. And then he made the statement that Jesus was before me. Now, there's a few ways we can understand this. I believe they're, all, they're both right. The first has to do with dignity as king of kings. He's before me. He's above me. He's above everything. And so he was acknowledging that Jesus was something beyond him. Greater than him. That he wasn't even worthy to untie his shoes. But he understood something else that can only come from revelation. He understood that Jesus was eternal. That He was before Him. John was actually six months older physically than Jesus. But John is acknowledging that Jesus was before Him. Now this here is some tremendous knowledge and it's still not enough to bring people to salvation. It's bringing people closer. The knowledge is becoming pure. Truths are coming that people can begin to understand more. But the truths that are going to be necessary for salvation is going to come through Messiah Himself and then ultimately through the work that He does on the cross. And then He brought something else out. That Messiah would come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, did He understand what that was? I have no idea. How much more did He teach His disciples? I, we're not told. This is what we are given, but I don't doubt that there was more revelation that He was pouring into His disciples. And so, here's this revelation about, about Messiah that was astounding, but let's look a little bit more at this. John was the son of a sacrificing priest. So he went through his yearly time because, because King David had set up a, a cycle of the priests to be able to, to serve for two weeks at a time, and the rest of the time they could be home. That way they could take care of the family business and farms and so on. 
And so Zechariah would serve his time, and when he'd come in, they would cast lots for what they would do so that they didn't always do the same thing. So some would have one time they're doing sacrifice, and others doing incense and so on. So there'd be the whole cycle that would go there, that would be going on. He was the son of a sacrificing priest. If he would have went in that direction, he could have been a sacrificing priest. But God had a different call on him. And being raised in the home of a sacrificing priest, I guarantee you, he knew the language of the temple. He knew the language. And the language of Lamb of God was explosive, was loaded. And for him to use that language, which he knew what that meant, he knew what that meant, for him to use that language, behold, the Lamb of God had so much meaning to him because he understood all the dynamics behind it. Now, there's two primary sources where the thought Lamb of God comes from. Both of them come out of the sacrificial system, but yet one has a little different flavor to it. But the first is the sacrificial system. And it's astounding when you look at the Old Testament, you look at the Mosaic Law, and you see all the sacrifices, you see the temple, you see all these types of Messiah that is there, what, what Jesus would do. All these types that are there that speak of Him again and again. And all people would have to do is open their eyes and begin to understand what does it mean for Him to be the Lamb of God. Because now a revelation is coming to us. What does it mean for Him to be the one who would take away sins? Now we begin to see it in the Lamb of God. Because the whole idea of the Lamb of God has to do with sacrifices. There are four primary expressions of sacrifice where Lamb of God would be understood there. The first would have been the Passover Lamb. And this happened out of the tenth plague that came upon Egypt in the deliverance of Israel. And in that tenth plague, it was the plague of the slaying of the firstborn of the Lamb. And the only way that you would not be slain if you were the firstborn is you had to be in a house that was covered by the blood of the Lamb. There had to be this sacrificed Lamb, and the blood was taken with hyssop and put over the, the doorpost of, of your house, and it says when the angel came by and he saw the blood, he would pass over that home. What a picture of what Jesus does. What a picture of what He does in sanctifying a family. When the blood is upon the doorposts of the house, He does some special work in the, inside of the children because the parents are walking rightly before God. The blood covering is upon them and the sanctifying work of the Spirit is working in them and to their children. Wonderful picture. Wonderful picture of what God does. Even theologians, when they look at this, there is no argument about the aspect of the sacrifice, that this sacrifice, this lamb, was a sin offering, was a sacrifice for sin. So how is it that the death angel passed over all those homes? How is it? Because the blood of the sacrifice was poured out for them. That they were forgiven of their sins and so death passed over them. When you look at the New Testament, the whole idea of, of the New Testament of this deliverance is not deliverance as what Israel thought of back then, of deliverance from Egypt. But in the New Testament, it has one thing. The deliverance of sin. 
That's the whole whole thing. Israel had a terrible time with that. The scribes and Pharisees had a terrible time with that because the whole concept of salvation in the Old Testament is corporate, and it is this this thing of deliverance from our oppressors. And here now, Jesus came to deliver from the greatest oppressor that there is of sin, death, and hell. He came to deliver from the greatest bondage that, that destroys people. The second expression of Lamb of God is found in the sin offering or guilt offering. Now, I'm not going to get deep into this, but in the Old Testament, there was only forgiveness for unintentional sins. There was no forgiveness in the Old Testament for intentional sin. People don't understand that, but that's a serious thing. That's why I'm so glad I'm under the New Testament covenant. Because what was the penalty for adultery? What was the penalty for murder? Death. Right? Serious stuff. People don't understand. But if you accidentally or, or, or just, just by chance ended up sinning, you could go to Jerusalem and you had to go to Jerusalem and you went to Jerusalem and you would take a lamb and you take that lamb and that lamb would be examined by a priest to make sure it was good and there was no no damage, no disease, no broken bones and it was good, it was acceptable, then you could take it into the temple and offer it up as a sacrifice. And you would have to go and take that lamb and lay your hands on the head of that lamb. Because here's the whole thing about this. If you want forgiveness for the crimes that you have committed, which you are absolutely guilty of, and you deserve the divine justice for, the only thing you can do is take your guilt off of your head and put it on the head of that animal. And any sin that you don't take off of your head and put on that animal, you will still pay the price for. Do you understand the picture of that? You are going to this land. You are laying your hands upon it. You are taking all your sins and putting on that animal. But somebody has to die. Because the wages of sin is death. Somebody has to die. And so now, because you transferred your sin to this animal, that animal dies. The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Phenomenal picture. Phenomenal picture. Then you have the great day of atonement. This is the most holy day of the Jewish year. It's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It is the only day of the entire year where God required Israel to fast. The only day. It was to be a day of mourning. After you have the, the, the seven days of festivities and joy, now it was to come to this day of mourning. Mourning over your sins. Mourning over the sins of Israel. Mourning over the sins of the nations of the world. And in that day, it was referred to as the Sabbath of Sabbaths. The highest holy day. And the high priest would enter into the most holy place to make atonement for the sins of the people. But before he could go in, he had to make atonement for himself. And, and Paul really gets into this in the book of Hebrews where he talks about that. But how Jesus went into the most holy place once and for all to make atonement for sin. And the veil of the temple was ripped open so that we could freely approach God now. So the Lamb of God was the Lamb that was offered up. And then you had the daily and morning sacrifices. 
these sacrifices went on even in the midst of all the other sacrifices that would happen according to the rituals of the, of the festivals. So this was done relentlessly every morning, every evening, every day. There were these offerings that were offered up and they were all sin offerings. They were for the sins of the people. When you see the story uh, or the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, it is taking place, that is taking place at one of these, either the morning or the evening sacrifice. And in the Greek, it does not, he is not saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's not what the Greek says. He's beating his breast. He's looking at the Lamb. And he's saying, be unto me a propitiation, or be unto me an atonement. He doesn't say, be merciful to me. That's an incorrect translation of the Greek. Be to me a propitiation. I'm a sinner and I need, I need forgiveness, O oh God. Revelation coming more and more of who this Messiah would be. And yet, none of these sacrifices were enough to take away sins. They covered them. Jesus breathed His last at the evening sacrifice. He died at the evening sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And when He died, the veil to the temple was ripped in two so that we could approach God freely and know that we could be accepted by Him. Not because we are good or righteous or do everything of ourselves, but because we go by atonement. We enter in by atonement, by the blood of Christ. And so Peter told us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now the second way that we can understand Lamb of God comes from a place in Scripture that really the Jews don't even want to go there. They don't even want to look at it. Isaiah 53. It begins with, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who will believe our message? Who? What a question. What a phenomenal question to ask. Who will believe our message? Who will believe this message of what is going to go on here? What's going to be said about this Lamb? Who is going to believe it? Who is going to put their faith in the God that is speaking this? Who will believe the truth about God's Word of what's being told and they will accept it as what He has said rather than trying to redefine it and give it some different meaning so that they can live as they still want to? Who will believe that our sin is exceedingly evil? Because that's what the Lamb of God reveals. You see, the cross condemns before it redeems. Do you understand that? The cross first says, here is how evil your sin is. Here is the only remedy for your sin. That God had to become human to die upon the cross that you could be forgiven. Here is the reality of it. And once we come to the point we understand the reality of what the Lamb of God is and how great our sin is, then we can begin to see the wonder of redemption. That's where the beauty of the cross is really seen after the horror of our sin becomes a reality to us. And so who will believe that our sin is exceedingly evil? And who will believe that there's only one remedy? 
only one remedy. No other answer. No other way out. No other possibility. No other Savior. And we can say that in our hearts as believers and still not fully, completely believe it because we're still thinking that somehow we can do something about our situation. I love preaching out of Isaiah 53, and so I'm not going to expound much on it because maybe one day I will. But you have these three phenomenal verses that speak about the Lamb of God in just beautiful, powerful, powerful ways. Verses 4-6. through Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. You know, as if Israel would have understood these verses, if they would have understood this chapter, then when the angels came and spoke of a Savior, they would have had a much fuller understanding. But because they didn't understand it, because this isn't what was commonly taught or preached or the people prepared, they didn't understand Messiah as a suffering Messiah to deliver us from sin and Satan and death. Because they didn't comprehend that. This phenomenal prophecy that could have been so much life to them was missed because they failed to comprehend it. Why was this sacrifice necessary? When Jesus was in the garden, three times He went to the Father and says, If it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. And Jesus, of course, is speaking out of His humanity, but I believe He's also speaking out of His divinity. It's the struggle that He's going through. And if there's any other way, God who is all-powerful, God who who can do whatever is right in keeping with His character. And yet God incarnate is saying, is there any other way? And the response was three times, had to be to Him, no. No other way. Because the sin of mankind is so exceedingly evil, and the holiness of God is so infinite beyond anything we can comprehend, that there is no ability for there to be reconciliation between God and man apart from what Jesus would be as the Lamb of God. It was the only way. The justice of God must be appeased. It must be dealt with. And the only way it could be appeased was through God loving mankind to such a tremendous extent that He would pay that kind of price. Because what took place on Calvary you and I will never, ever, ever understand the depth of it because it goes beyond what a human mind could even comprehend. I can say it, but I don't even, I can't even figure it out because there was that moment where God, the Father, rejected God, the Son. That's what was weeping. That's why Jesus was weeping in the garden. The agony of separation like you and I can't even comprehend. It wasn't the physical abuse. It was the separation between father and son. And how that can happen, I don't, I don't even have the theological wherewithal to try and come up with something with it. All I can do is by faith believe the report. I can believe the report. and says, He did it. He did it for me because He wanted me. 
And so why was it necessary for the sacrifice they placed? Because their sins are so great and they deserve divine judgment. And the wonder of the love and mercy of God is that He wants us with Him forever. If you dwell on that for very long, if you take some time today all alone to sit down and and think about the aspect on how God wants you, if you're not overwhelmed, then you haven't thought about it very much. That He would want you. That He'd break into this world and then break into your own personal life while you were yet a sinner, while you were at war with Him, while you were a rebel. He broke in this world because He wanted you. And it was absolutely necessary. There was no other way than that Messiah, the Lamb of God, would be crucified. No other way except for that. Because the only way that a holy God can be reconciled to wicked mankind. We don't understand the absolute gulf between the two. Yes, we have our little pictures about Jesus spanning the gulf between man and God. And it's true. But yet we don't comprehend the gulf. We don't really comprehend how big that is, how huge that is. The difference from man and God and the sin that that has separated us so completely, entirely, and absolutely from Him, except by Calvary. Except by Calvary. Except that He would be the Lamb of God. Except that He would willingly become the suffering sin bearer. So think about your own sin for a moment. Have you ever been overwhelmed with guilt, with grief, with regret? Pretty miserable, isn't it? And it can be crushing for us. And yet He bore all your sins, all my sins, all the sins of every human being on those shoulders, and He was literally crushed under the weight of them. Crushed. A sin bearer. Nobody except God Himself could handle that weight. And nobody but God Himself could handle the wrath of the Father. Do you understand? The fullness of the wrath of the Father was poured out against the perfect, sinless, spotless Son because He became our sin bearer for us. He took upon His shoulders our sins so that we could be forgiven. He became the Lamb of God for us. It was the substitutionary work of the great victim. Now, we don't like that idea. It's an old theological term there, the, the great victim. Because he's the only one who did not deserve divine judgment. He did it willfully for us you question the love of God, it's because you have never ever looked at Calvary rightly. You've never saw its wonder, its depths, its heights. You've never saw the reality of what it is, why He did it, and the benefits, the phenomenal, the phenomenal benefits that come out of that. Because through the cross, we are reconciled to God. And by being reconciled to God, then we begin to have access to all the benefits that come through sons and daughters of God. The benefits of the atonement is absolutely astounding beyond what we can even fathom. Because He made the way that those could become a reality that we have no natural right to because naturally we are rebels against God. So then the Lamb of God stood before Pilate. 
John chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. Pilate went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man! Behold the man! Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! See, Jesus had just been scourged, beaten, smote with rods, slapped, punched, all kinds of abuse laid upon him. And now here's this, this bloody man with a crown of thorns upon him and this purple robe upon him. And Pilate said, Behold the man! Behold the man! Look at the man! Look at the man! They didn't know who that man was. They didn't understand. Pilate didn't understand. But you know what happened? His wife sent him a note saying, Do nothing to this righteous man. I have suffered many things of dreams about him. He was terrified. You understand, Pilate was having a really, really bad day. I mean, I'm not, I'm not playing with that. I mean, it was a bad day. Pilate ended up committing suicide eventually. Because he never went the way of the cross. He never did what was necessary. But I have to imagine all the days of his life that event haunted him. Because then he became even more scared. When the Jews claimed that he was the Son of God. They're saying he took him back after this. After that event right there, where he said, Behold the man. He took him back again and began talking to him. Who are you? Who are you? And now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. First he said, Behold the man. Now he's saying, Behold your king. What knowledge had come to Pilate? But Pilate was not strong enough to stand against the religious Jews. He was afraid of Caesar. When they went and threatened him with Caesar, going to Caesar, he backed down and he was terrified. Rather be terrified of, of Caesar than be terrified of God. What a, what a, what a sad commentary. They cried, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Lamb of God right there. The Lamb of God. Do you understand? The Lamb of God right there. And all they could say was crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. We do not own him as king. We do not want him to rule over us. And Jesus brought that out in some of his parables. Where the people says, we do not want this man to rule over us. Well, the problem is they can't stop him from ruling. An absolute impossibility. Either they bow to his rule or they rebel against it. They can do nothing about it. They can either enjoy his reign or they can cower in a corner from it. But they can't alter it. They can't alter it. There's no way they can change that. And so Pilate said, behold your king. We don't want that king. 
See, that's the whole thing with the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God is brought before us. What are we going to do with Him? Do we want Him? Are we going to bow before Him? Are we going to adore Him? Or are we going to rebel against Him? And of course, we have the good news. In John chapter 20, verses 27 and 28, Then Jesus said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God. What an astounding event there. He was unbelieving, wasn't there the first time Jesus showed himself to the apostles. Now he was the second time. And he saw. And he believed. What a different response from the Pharisees and the scribes and the multitude out there crying, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! But because Thomas began to understand the Lamb of God, just a little bit began to comprehend the sin bearer. Now he could go and bobble for Him and say, My Lord and my God. Begin to bobble for Him and adore. He was beginning to have an understanding of God like he had never understood before. And it was revolutionizing his very concept of life and the worship of God. But you know, the thing that is so astounding as we look at a lamb, and lamb, I mean, is there a more vulnerable creature? A little lamb. If it's not for the shepherd that watches over the lambs, they will be torn by, by any beast. So vulnerable, no ability to defend themselves. And yet it was a lamb that purchased men for God. What an astounding thought. Power like we can't even comprehend. And this lamb is coming back. You understand, he's not weak. There is no weakness in him. There never was. The picture was always given the whole idea of sacrifice right from the Garden of Eden. You understand when they went and sinned? The first sacrifice, the clothes that Adam and Eve were clothed with was the first sacrifice. That's where mankind began to understand animal sacrifice. They were clothed with the skins of the first animals that died from sacrifice. From that time on, that has always been there, that's been part of something in man, even though it got twisted and distorted through all of its, its false religions and idolatry, there was still there. People understood there was something wrong, and there had to be something to take care of it. And the death of somebody must be involved in this. He's coming back. The absolute most scary being that there is. I guarantee you that lamb is absolutely terrifying. We don't even understand. That lamb is not safe. That lamb is infinite in power. And I'm so glad that he's good. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. See, mankind cannot escape that lamb. They can't get away from that lamb. There's no place that they can hide from Him. They'll try and flee from Him, but there's no place they can hide. And then Jesus said in closing out Revelation chapter 22, Behold, I am coming quickly and My reward is with Me to give to everyone according to His work. Now can you imagine that? I thought about this while I was putting this message together and just... 
Can you imagine those, all the people out there in the multitude that says, crucify him, crucify him. He will not rule over us. And then they die. And who do they see on that throne? Terrifying thought. But you know what? When Thomas died, he had a different picture, didn't he? He saw God that was there to welcome him, embrace him, open his arms because he embraced the Lamb of God. He understood who has believed our report. And Thomas could have said, I do. And the evidence of belief is the life that comes out of it. And if anything, this is where I'm really wanting to go with this message. In John chapter 1, verses, verses 36 and 37, John declared, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard Him. Follow Him. So there's John. He's been training up his own disciples. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God. What happens? Those two disciples leave John to begin following Jesus. You see, you understand the Lamb of God. You understand what that is. And we understand correct. There's only one thing to do. That is to follow. That is to give everything up to follow. Whatever that may be. Whatever's involved in that. But it's giving everything up to follow. That's what they did. They left everything. All that they had attained in the place of, of being a disciple of John and what they might have hoped to see in the future. Then they left it all now to, to follow the Lamb of God. To follow the One who would what? Be our suffering Savior. Be the Lamb that would take upon Himself the sins of the world. They were Jews. They understood the language. They understood that as the Lamb of God, He had to die for the sins of mankind. And they followed Him. You know, the thing that's so interesting, when you look at the Word of God, in both Testaments, there is no definition for the word faith. Not one single verse in the entire Bible defines what faith is. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have what faith does but not what faith is. Tozer brought out a powerful point. He said, faith is the gaze upon a saving God. That's probably one of the best definitions of faith that there is. To look at Him. To behold Him. To look at Him and examine Him and study Him and know Him and love Him and want Him and yearn for Him and press into Him that your eyes are fixed upon Him. That's why in the New Testament, one of the words for worship can be understood as a dog licking the hand. Now, I don't know how many of you had dogs. I know many of you do or have, and I've had them in the past. And you know, you got these critters that, I mean, I don't want to say they worship, but it's like they have vulneration of, of their masters greater than what we can understand. You know, there's one movie years and years ago, and I really don't speak much of movies with it. It was not a Christian movie, but it was a good movie. Um, and uh, I think it was called Hachi. And it's the story of a dog. And the master dies. 
And I'll tell you what, I watched it once, we'll never watch it again because I lose my manhood. You know? I mean, you just go and you're sitting there bawling over a dog story, you know, just going, bawling. But you see, this loyalty, this, this, this dog that would lick the hand of the master is the idea, this adoration, this looking to him. And, you know, when we drive into town from our house, you know, we go by this one house and I see all the time this dog sitting out by the, by the road, by the driveway. What's he doing? He's waiting for his master. Everything is expectation. I can't wait for him to come home. I know the sound of his truck. I know when he's coming home. I hear I can't wait. And what does he want to do? He wants to go and just can't wait to come up and lick his hand. Faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. It's looking at him, wanting him, that, that, that in essence, that devotion that we could learn something from dogs from. Because I don't know how many people have devotion to God like dogs have devotion to their masters. You understand what I'm saying? Dogs can really put us to shame. And dogs are not a positive thing in the Old Testament. You understand? It's not positive there. Very negative ideas of them. When you were called a dog, that was a very degrading thing. But yet when we look at that, we see something of devotion that is lacking in the church. How half-hearted we are in it. And yet we fail to understand what the Lamb of God has done for us. What, the, what He has paid that we could belong to Him. That we could be His. That we could be reconciled to Him. And so what is the only right response to understanding the Lamb of God? To understanding who He is? So leave everything and follow Him. Just like two of His disciples did. John's disciples. Leave everything to follow Him. Father, we come before You now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Lord, I love Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul is praying over the Ephesians and that he's asking them that, they would, that You would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they would know You better. God, that is our great and present need of a greater revelation of You. God, every struggle that is going on in this room has its root in our understanding of You and our understanding of ourselves. There are some people that are here this morning that have been in the same identical thing, the same identical attitudes, the same identical approach year after year after year. And it will be the same thing five or ten years from now. Unless they allow you to bring a revolution to their understanding of who you are. A revolution to you as Lamb of God. And that's just one dimension. One dimension of you. But Lord, I'm asking for something that would be a powerful work in the hearts of your people. Lord, you came into this world as a little baby for one purpose. Lord, there were other purposes that were there. There were other things that You were going to do. You were going to teach us what it means to be human. You're going to teach us what it means to serve and love and obey the Father. You're going to teach us all these dynamics, but yet ultimately it was to go to the cross. It was to be the Lamb of God. To be that sacrifice. And Lord, without that sacrifice, without it, there is no reconciliation with You. There is no ability to be able to be acceptable the thing that causes the separation between us and You will still be there. 
And it's only because you are the Lamb of God that you made the way that we could be forgiven, that we could truly be reconciled to you, O God. Lord, I'm asking for work that would be in the hearts of those that are struggling, that are not walking like they should. That they would really want to come and say, God, you told me Isaiah 53, who has believed your report. Well, God, I've not really believed it like I should. I got so many bad, so much baggage, so many things that are wrong. God, I'm asking that you would help me, that you change me, that you'd give me a right view and understanding of you. Help me to see the ugly things inside of me. And God, I need a means, a way to overcome them because they can't do it myself. Jesus, we are asking for you to break in the hearts and the lives. In the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. What is Jesus after? What's he after? Here's where it becomes so important that we understand Him as the God that wants us. What is He after when He convicts us, when He confronts us, when He deals with us? What is He after? What is it that He wants from us? He's not wanting to harm us. He's not wanting to abuse us. He's not wanting to beat us down. He is wanting and longing for our victory more than we have ever imagined. He is longing and desiring our, our overcoming. He wants us to worship Him not because He needs our worship, but He wants us to worship Him because it is in that place of worship where we enter into fellowship with Him and we can know Him and His sweetness and His wonder and His holiness. And we can know Him deeper than we've ever known Him before. Every desire that He has had for us, every desire, every thought has been for our good. He has not wanted to bring harm, <clears throat> not wanted to abuse us or hurt us in any way, shape, or form. He has been out for this reconciliation because we know that what we need more than anything in all of life is Himself. Faith that is so central to the reality of salvation. We cannot be saved apart from faith. That's how important faith is. We are saved by grace through faith. Without faith, there's no ability for us to be saved. And yet, because faith is so important, do you understand why the devil wants to corrupt it inside of us? Distort it. Somehow try to make it legalistic and do's and don'ts instead of the gaze of a soul looking upon a saving God gazing upon this Lamb of God that loves us and desires us and wants us and calls us and woos us because He knows that He is what we need. So I'm going to open this altar up in just a moment here. If you need to be at this altar, you find a place up here. But I'm going to ask something here. I don't want you to come to the altar. If you've come a hundred times, you can come a hundred and one. I don't care. That's great, but... If you come to this altar, it's because you're coming saying, God, I need a revolution. And if you understand that you need a revolution, then you can't go back home and begin doing the same things you've done. 
There must be a revolution. You must see the very things that are separating you from God. And you've got to begin to cry out, says God, this needs a change. And those things that separate us from God, we most often love, we like, even though they may be self-abusive and harmful to us. We need to become a people that want Him more than anything else. And that we cry out, God, help me to overcome. Help me to overcome. I don't even know how to deal with this, God. I don't. I got this attitude in me that's been so deep-rooted. God, I don't even know how to overcome. And that's a great place to start because that's where it begins right there. But you've got to begin to then really deal with that and understand that this is not a small problem. If He puts His finger on it, it means you are to deal with it. Not to gloss over it. Not to ignore it. So I really do want to ask that this altar is a place of revolution. Where you are asking, crying out for revolution that's needed inside of you. And you know what? I believe in that. Jesus will give you the absolute greatest Christmas present you could have. Which is Himself. If you need to be at this altar, I want you to find a place up here right now. This altar is open for you.